It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at The Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. Good planets hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. And true currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Jet streams, perfect air. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. Good planets are in the Right. I see, according to my uh, screen, that uh, you actually got on Restream this morning. Uh, no. Then who said good morning, everyone? The Mike Novak. I, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Facebook. Oh, that's where you did it. You did it on Facebook. Okay. There we go. I did it so, on Facebook. Um, and, and Becky's having issues on Restream this morning, so bear with us. I'll try to comment uh, as, as things come in. Skeet's already I'm with us. I just can't comment on YouTube. So. On YouTube, uh, but uh, we'll we'll do what we can. Uh, hey, everybody! It's the holiday. It's the holiday season. That not that holiday season. No, this is the uh, summer holiday season, uh, which means uh, we're going to be talking about uh, all the the explosion. Boom! Boom! Wait. Uh, the explosion of farmers markets uh, starting this weekend and next weekend, and our buddy Bob Bob Benenson from uh, from uh, local food forum is going to be with us to to bring us up to speed. In fact, I need to check. Did he send uh, that? He was going to send me some photos. He was out. Yeah, okay. He's got batches of photos here that I'm going to have to load in. Batches and batches of photos. Uh-huh. Oh, and, and yes, because it is Memorial Day weekend. Yeah. Are you wearing white shoes today? Am I wearing you're, what? You're white. white. You can I don't... now wear your white shoes. Like I have anybody white shoes anymore. anymore. I don't think anybody follows that. No, you know, no. Like I don't... my grandma. I it's, it's it's that's old school. That's that's really yeah, old that's school. My yeah. Yeah. And wear the white gloves, the white shoes, and the hat after. Um. Yeah. And and then the what about the white belt as as well? That was the uh, when I was in college, um, that was known as the full Cleveland for some reason. I have no idea why, but the white shoes, white belt, yeah, I don't know, but uh, uh, that's what that was. So anyway, Bob will be here with us uh, at ten o'clock to talk about markets and what's going on in the food world because there's a lot going on. Of course, as we get into summer, everybody's growing stuff. Uh, we've been harvesting, uh, we've been making our own salads from our backyard for weeks now, um, with, uh, spinach and bok choy and 
uh, some uh, baby chard and um, some other stuff. Uh, the kale, kale is rocking. I'm going to be able to make uh, my fit, my world famous kale and quinoa dish uh, from the kale we have there very soon. Um, as soon as we have won't, enough. We won't have the tomatoes yet, but yeah. Uh, Mr. Brown tells us that the Evanston and Wilmette have had their farmer's market up for a month. Now, well, so has uh, Green City Market's been up for a month as well. April, yeah. Since April, right. They started to be get two months. They've been up two months. Um, and the um, in my backyard, Logan Square, has been up for a month. Uh, and I haven't been there yet. It's just like... Hmm. I get done with this show and I collapse in a heap and I'm like, oh, do I really have to go out to a farmer's market? No, I don't want to. Um, I might do it today, though. I'm thinking today. Of course, now, of course, the day I choose, it's going to be jam-packed because it's the holiday weekend. So, uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, anyway, folks, uh, we'll be talking that. But before we get to that, it's monarch season as well. Um, the, the monarchs are up here. In fact, they're in the Wisconsin, they're in the Michigan. Uh, they're all over the place. Although I, have you seen one Peggy? No. Neither have I. No. I have not seen a monarch. I haven't seen any butterflies. I've seen a lot of dragonflies. But I no. saw, uh, a couple of butterflies really early on, ridiculously early, like a couple of months ago in my backyard. Um, and they were just, you know, uh, cabbage butterfly. Um, so, um, but uh, and it was probably one of those weird warm days, and the the guy looked around and went, "Oh, I'm really early. I shouldn't be here." Um, but uh, no, I haven't seen any monarchs. But uh, I'm hoping very soon. And we're going to have Dolly Foster with us on the program today. Uh, she's a, a horticulturist, uh, an expert on this. She's she's getting her degree, her master's uh, after lo these many years, as uh, as she has told us, and so. Um, yeah. she's going she to been on the show since I think 2019, you know, the last time she was with us and, and I checked it out was, uh, when, uh, we were at the Chicago flower and garden show. It was mm-hmm. the last time that we were at the Chicago flower and garden show in, in 2019. 2019. Yeah. And then back in the studio, I found some really fun photos of us with Dolly when she brought her butterflies into the studio. Oh, that's right. I had forgotten yeah. that. I'd forgotten all about that. Yes, yeah, she did. That was ultra, ultra cool. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, let us uh, let's just uh, bring her in right now, uh, Dolly. Yeah, come on in. Come on now, Dolly. <laughs> How you doing this morning? Good morning. I'm great. How are you guys? All right. Great. I I had forgotten about you bringing in the butterflies. You uh, you kind of went nuts that day. Yeah, it was uh, it was a strange. Uh, sequence of events. I was heading to my father's 75th birthday party later in that day, but I was not going home. So Mm. I had to bring the butterflies to you because I couldn't go home and get the butterflies to go to New Lenox for my dad's birthday party. (laughs) Uh, And you were, wait, and were you bringing them for us or for your dad? It was for both. But when we got to the, when I got to the birthday party, we released them with all the little kids that were there and a lot of the adults that were there had a lot of fun releasing them. So. And 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 because that's what you do, you uh, one of the things you do is you do raise some monarchs uh, each season, and we'll talk about that. In fact, well, let's talk about yeah. that right now. Let's we'll just start sure. with that. Um, I should mention though that uh, Dolly, <laughs> as I mentioned, is a, a, a horticulturist. You you used to be the uh, 
horticulturist for the Oaklawn Park District. Uh, and now yep. you've decided, let's go to school, you know, which I, I managed to dodge my whole adult life uh, and good for me. Uh, but no, you, uh, you want to be there. And why are you going back to school? I'm going to finish my degree, my master's degree that I started a long, long time ago and uh, hopefully move on to bigger and better things. And uh, my degree is going to be in crop science, which doesn't seem like it would have very many uses up here, but maybe urban agriculture is something I might like to get into. So we'll just have to see where the road takes me. Yeah, well, you were you were talking about that with me the other day when we were doing a test of the uh, the system here and you 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 said you've already learned some eye-opening things uh, uh, about and how it relates to monarch butterflies as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Give us bit. give us a for instance. Come on, just give us a for instance. Oh man, I put everybody on the spot. That's my job. That's what he does. That's his mo. That's my mo, He's man. Sick, right? Um. God, I can't even think of anything. Well, all right, all right. <laughs> what we were talking about, I think one of the things we were talking about the other day was the loss of habitat uh, for monarchs. Yes. And Oh, yes. We were talking about crop row sizes. Right. And um, back in the 70s and the 80s, the crop row sizes were significantly wider. And I remember when I was a little girl, you know, driving on vacations and things like that and being able to look down the corn rows and seeing through the corn rows, uh, milkweed growing in the corn. And huh. that existed until about 1996 and 97 when Roundup Ready corn was released. And, and also the corn and then rows. They just, and they start, yeah, they started planting them closer together or what happened? Yeah, that was the other thing that with corn and soybeans and other crops, they're starting to make the corn rows significantly more narrow, which is a challenge because they actually have to build new equipment in order to do it. And Hmm. that the reason for that is to shade the soil more because the more shade you give the soil, the more canopy you create over the soil, the less weeds you'll have. Okay. So they can use less weed killers, basically, less weed herbicides you know that's the theory always it's always about how do we use uh less herbicide um but unfortunately in some ways that hasn't come to pass that uh you know because no um we're finding but like i said the other day you know farmers are out there trying to be efficient and save money they don't Mm -hmm. want to use herbicides unless they have to and they are not going to overuse herbicides because well, it costs of, it costs them money, yeah. If if they overuse them, right? Uh, but the problem is, we still don't have. Uh, it's one thing I mentioned to you the other day, and I've said on the show before. Back in the day, you saw a field of corn or soybeans, and what would pop up in between the rows were milkweeds. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you you won't see milkweed because they're killed off by the Roundup. Uh, all you see are the Roundup Ready crops the volunteers from the previous year. So you'll see corn pop up in the middle of a soybean yeah. field um, instead of milkweed. It would be much better for our pollinators if the milkweed popped up. But mm-hmm. uh, yes. uh, that has been the effect, one of the effects. And this is one of the problems. You know, we're talking today about monarch butterflies and they're in trouble. Uh, and and uh, if you look at the headlines, and I wrote about this on my 
um, on my blog today. You can go to MikeNovak.net. And if you look at the reports that are just coming out, and and one of the things that's weird this year is the reports just came out. Usually, you mentioned this to me the other day, Dolly. Usually we get them them, them in February, generally. This year. Overwintering reports. Yeah, the overwintering reports. We're just receiving them. Now, and that's weird because the butterflies are already here up in the upper Midwest and into Canada, I would imagine. Um, Any idea why that happened, Dolly? I haven't heard anything, but I can only imagine that COVID is part of it. Um, And, you know, some of the some of the just local problems that they're having down in um, Michoacan are probably a part of it, too. The the researchers have to actually get on the ground and they need to hike around the um, mountains and they need to scope out where the edges of the the monarch colonies are they can do it by plane but they also have to do it on the ground and i had heard a snippet a couple of years ago that they might start using drones which would be awesome because it would be more accurate because they can get closer to the trees with the drones well i've seen a uh, so, drone video that has already been shot yeah. In the, you've probably seen that as well, and the drones yeah. go in amongst the monarchs, and it's yeah. breathtaking. It's absolutely yeah. breathtaking. You, but, you'd be generally surprised at how much noise the butterflies actually make when they <laughs> really start flapping their wings. Well, no, no, they're no, no, they're, 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 they're screaming at the drones, get out of here. We're, <laughs> we're trying to overwinter. We're trying to sleep here. <laughs> Come on. Well, that that particular video, that drone was dressed up as a hummingbird. It was absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Amazing. It was a tiny little drone, and the butterflies didn't even know it was there. So that was a very cool video. Yeah. Micro drone. Uh, so yeah. what, so what, this is what we're talking about right now. Um, this is the total area occupied by monarch colonies at overwintering sites in Mexico, since what 1996 or so 95 i guess i'm looking yeah 96 um and the 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 trend is not good um no. and, and um what scientists and other uh researchers have come they, they they've set a benchmark for this which is that first line you see up from the bottom so it's about yeah. 6 hectares All right. Um, They say that six hectares of monarch occupation over the winter is probably the baseline for continued resilience as a species. Um, And we've only been there once in the last 15 years, basically, maybe a a little bit more than that since 20. Yeah. Um, And this year, the the headline, the headlines you're seeing and the various publications are, ooh, monarch population up 35%. Well, yeah, compared to last year, uh, you know, uh, in 2020, uh, it was 2.10 hectares, or that's 5.19 acres. Um, mm-hmm. A year later, it went up to 2.84. It went from 2.10 to 2.84, which is from 5.19 acres to 7.01 acres. All right. That yeah, technically that's 35%. But look at this look at the graph. That tells you the story. 
that we're if you if if you did an average of that, just like when you do um, uh, graphs about uh, climate change and and the increase in temperature, you know there are variations up and down, but in general the trend is is up for for the warming on the on the climate on the on the Earth. Uh, the trend for monarchs is down. Um, yeah, and uh, you know we had a really really real uh-huh. big scare back in. I'm trying to see uh, what year that was. 2014. 2014, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. We're, and this we're, is the Eastern monarch population too, correct? Not the whole population. Yes. Right. Yeah, this is yeah. the Eastern monarch population. Uh, the ones that migrate 2,000 miles each year and go from uh, as far north as Nova Scotia to, uh, to the forests of Mexico, the Oyamo forests. Or is it OML? However you pronounce it, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm 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 kind of surprised. Well, a- actually, I maybe I'm not because the groups who are promoting this say probably want to do graph half full. They want to say, "Hey, it went up thirty five percent." But I look at that graph and I think, folks, um, this is still not good. We're and and part of it there 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 are a number of things that are causing this. Uh, and you know about this, uh, Dolly. Uh, it's milkweed depletion, which we just talked about, is one mm-hmm. of the things, and that has to do with Roundup and what we're how we how we farm now. Yeah. Uh, um, illegal logging. Uh, in uh, you were talking to me about that the other day. You're you're you said that there's still issues there. What is it uh, you've learned about that? Well, there there's locals that are desperate for money, you know, obviously to feed their families. They're, the families are relatively poor rural families and they will go up on the mountain and they will do some logging and they will be able to make pretty much all the money that they need for several months or a year by logging a few of the large trees. And these are these are old growth trees. They're They're not quite as big as old growth sequoias that we see in California, but these are old trees. They're very, mm-hmm. very large. And um, the other problem is that the Mexican cartels are starting to take over some of the avocado farms that are in Michoacan. So Michoacan has plenty of moisture. It's not desert. It's um, temperate forest. Um, the the OML forest where the um, on the mountain where the monarchs are that I've gone to is beautiful. It's moist. There's fog. It's cool. It's shady. It's it's really really beautiful. And uh, it's good for avocado production. And so the the individuals that are logging is a problem. The cartels taking over some of the avocado farms is a problem. But then also starting new avocado farms is starting. When we were driving around the area that week that we were there, you just you saw lots and lots of small greenhouses, hoop houses, um, gardening, uh, like nursery production with shade cloth over it and it was all avocado trees so um that's that's a problem because then they divert water away from the natural areas on the mountain and they divert the water from the mountain streams into their avocado farms Mm. so that's denying the oyml forests the water they need so you're telling you're telling me avocados like it moist moist and misty is is that the idea? Yeah, yeah. They they can't tolerate cold, but they are temperate 
climate plant, which means they like, they go through, I don't think they lose their leaves in the winter because they all were. <laughs> you don't know my avocado plant here. Uh, um, <laughs> That's because we're not in the temperate climate. Well, actually, now, now I'm going to go off script here because you brought this up. Um, do you know anything about growing avocados in our? Absolutely not. Oh, well, okay. Because, you know, I talk, I've talked to people, we've had people on the show who said, uh, a guy from California, and he goes, oh, my, you should see my avocados. Well, you live in California, all right? Right. Yeah. Um, I've got You're one. You inside for seven months of the year. I have one here that I, it's seven feet tall now, and I bring it in every winter. I put it out. I'm about to put it outside for the summer. Uh, mm-hmm. It loves it outside. Um, mm-hmm. it sends out all these fresh shoots and leaves oh, yeah. and, um, but it's never bloomed. Uh, I don't even know. No, it, Cause it doesn't have a long enough period. Of, I know. And know, light outside. And I bring and it, it in. Doesn't, and we don't have the pollinators here that it needs. Yeah. So I, I oh, that's a really good that. point. I mean, if it, yeah. If it did bloom, there's a lot of very species specific pollinators for tropical type plants. So. Well, duh. Uh, well, I'll just import the the, uh, the tropical pollinators here. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, so yeah. So every and so every year, about this time of year, it's it's in the living room. I put give it as much sun as I can over the winter, and the leaves turn brown over the winter. A bunch of them drop off, and then I put it outside, and it goes nuts again. And you should um, have it under your happy leaf all winter. Uh, you know, I could do that, but I'm too busy putting my. Uh, my my veggies under my hat i need another happy leaf and just put it there and i mm-hmm. then i'd then i'd have to find out how i'd have to string it up and blah 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 so uh uh oh and and oh, my friend diane my our friend diane writes um i had a three-foot avocado that i put outside and the squirrels ate all the leaves and killed it so are you oh, sure yeah. it was squirrels i don't know because i put mine out and they don't bother it if i put mine out i'd probably have the squirrels or the chipmunks just do what they did in the past, dig it up, eat the avocado pit, move on. <laughs> I mean, that's it. They're after the well, I'm past that. See, I've got. I, oh, I no, no, I, I had ones that were pretty big. Yeah. I put uh, them outside a couple of years ago and whoosh, dug them right up and went to the uh, avocado pit. That's crazy. But we digress uh, because yes. we're talking really? about monarch butterflies <laughs> here, and uh, uh, and and the issues that I mentioned: milkweed depletion, illegal logging, climate crisis is another one uh guess what that's caused by folks oh it's us oh yeah i hadn't mentioned that it's human beings causing all these problems um yep it's it's you know you can just point the finger right at Mm -hmm. us because every every problem that the monarch has has to do with it with human beings um and we're not going to solve the climate crisis um certainly not quickly and uh, that will that will be our undoing uh, we could solve illegal logging quicker uh, if we could find a way to make uh, people less poor um, and, and less desperate. Uh, we could solve the milkweed depletion. In fact, we are trying to solve that because there are a lot of groups in the United States. There are partnerships, um, state and local, who are uh, attempting to plant milkweed and of course people like you dolly who encourage people to plant milkweed in their backyards yep yep yeah it's one of my favorite plants in my garden um i have 
I don't know, several species, probably about five, six. And um, I, I started out butterfly gardening a long, long time ago, and I didn't know anything about milkweed back then. Um, and I, so I was a failed milkweed gardener for a few years because I had all these species in my garden that were on the lists in the garden books, but they were all not species that were native. And one of the first milkweeds that I encountered was Asclepias tuberosa, which is the orange milkweed, the butterfly weed. And that's a really common plant in, in almost every garden center in the Midwest. And it was uh, kind of my introduction to native plants. And I've loved it ever since. It's been a challenge to grow in my clay soil, but uh, I have found certain it's places where I can grow it. Um, but yeah, it's, it can be a challenge if you have wet soil over the winter which who doesn't here in the midwest we all do but uh there are there's certain little you know spots that you can amend and everybody's soils slightly different in their gardens in different places so you can find a spot for it but that was really my introduction to native plants and when i started seeing caterpillars on that and then i expanded and, and found swamp milkweed and i found gardeners who could help me learn about it and i joined wild ones which is an incredible organization and there are local chapters all over um here in indiana where i live we have had the only indiana chapter up here in hammond at gibson woods for many many years but now there's a chapter down near indianapolis um, and uh, many chapters in illinois and it's a native plant society and uh, they concentrate on teaching people about how to landscape with natives to increase the population of not only monarch butterflies, but also all pollinators that are native. And they are um, really good at education, very good at education. And uh, so I learned a lot from there and just kind of went from there and just kept exploring different kinds of native plants and expanded native plants in my garden. And, and I continue to do so. And um, I love growing them. So, well, I love the idea of of uh, milkweeds as the gateway plant <laughs> to growing natives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, you know what? And it's a little addicting the first time you see a caterpillar on a, on a milkweed. Oh my god! It just blows your mind. It just it just blows your mind because we're so not used to seeing very many insects in our gardens anymore. Yeah. See, I think we've all gotten complacent to that, and. Um, we need well, to see the I, yeah, I, w I would put it another way. We've become numb to that because, um, yes. you know, all of us, the three of us are of a certain age when we grew up and we were kids and playing in the dirt. Insects were everywhere. Um, yeah. And you, it's it's not the same. Yeah. It's the not, old, you know, um, and, and that's the anecdotal. windshield effect, as it were. The windshield we effect. And, and some people yeah. think the windshield effect is, is not, well, it's not scientific. Uh, and I get that, but there have been studies that show that our insect population is declining throughout the planet, and there's there's so much anecdotal evidence of that that uh, in in some respect you, you yeah you always need the science you always want the numbers, but when everybody notices it, even people who are not interested in science, then something's going on. You have to tell me something something's going on. Um, and uh, I, but I, 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 a couple of things you mentioned uh, butterfly milkweed uh, before we get to the break here. You mentioned butterfly milkweed. I've never had any success growing it, and I don't even have that much clay. Uh, but what I do have a problem with is sun, and so mm -hmm. I'm going to make you yeah. later in the show today. 
uh, talk to us about plants that do well in shade but are still uh, going to attract pollinators. Um, I have a whole list for you. You yeah. do? Wow. Okay, great. And, 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 and my butterfly weed success, finally. Really? So finally. you've got it. It took, it took me several yeah. years, too. It took it really a while, was. and it's been coming back now. This is the third year. It's coming back like crazy right now. That's good. It found and you the right spot. You must have, because you don't have any sun either, or very little. East, east side. East side. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. You have to find the right spot. Right. And I'll have to try that. And and uh, the other comment I was going to make is about um, caterpillars. I've had milkweed in my yard for a number of years, have yet to see a caterpillar. Um, and I suspect that uh, if they are here, uh, they get picked off by uh, by yeah, Which is something whoever. I'd like to talk about after the break. Because that's, yeah, it's, it's possible. Yeah. That. It's not birds. I'll tell you that right now. No, it's, it's not wasps. birds. We'll start there. Yeah. Well, a because... lot of wasps. I watch them pick them off. Yeah, it's a lot of other things that eat them. It's not birds. Uh, because the birds learn early on that it's not. Um, it they don't taste so good. <laughs> no. No, uh, because they've got uh, all those uh, nasty chemicals that have to do with being able to eat milkweed, uh, coursing. Mm-hmm coursing through their veins uh that is to say if they have veins and i have no idea uh all right <laughs> it's the mike novak show with peggy molecki we're talking to dolly foster today um about my and we got some pictures here we got some videos uh that we're going to have to to pop up uh for everybody uh and there she goes she's disappeared uh Sorry. oh and now you're back that's okay uh, we're going to have more on uh, monarchs and milkweed. Please send us your comments and your questions. And uh, we will be right back after this. All right. So I wanted to talk about the Happy Leaf grow lights that we got from Happy Leaf LED. They're produced in the U.S., and they uh, are constructed really well. They hit the, the red light range um, kind of spot on. And uh, yeah, for the price, construction, and the results, they're worth every penny of it. Uh, right now we're using them for producing some microgreens here in the off season. And uh, as you can see, there's just a handful of lights that have a wide beam angle. And on the technical side, they just cover a lot of area um, with with least amount of equipment necessary. Um, for transplants, we uh, do our tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers, and we get them off to a great start early in the season. And um, have, we just love the results. From spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from Tinyo Biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners, too. And Blazing Star also offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in Zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks and great techniques at blazing-star.com. I was pretty well considered an outlier in nuts. 
and today after the nursery with the kids and everybody involved is still considered groundbreaking in the sense that we do it just different. Over in a possibility place in 1978, by 1982 we were strictly into natives and have been ever since. Possibility Place Nursery grows more trees, shrubs, and perennials than I can count. Several hundred species from large shade trees to very small perennial plants. There is a native plant for every place in your yard. From trees to shrubs to flowers and grasses, they flower just as pretty. They flower on time. They bring in butterflies. They make the yard more dynamic. And every time you do a planting, is an opportunity to add a native or to integrate a native into your landscape and make it richer. Wow, what a coincidence. Actually, not so, not so much a coincidence. That's a, a great place. to. I imagine that uh, you've uh, taken advantage of Possibility Place in the past, Dolly. I have. I have. They are just fantastic guys. Uh, they, they really, really are. Yeah. And, you know, so... a lot of their plants... There's a lot of their trees in Oak Lawn in the parks, actually. Ah, all right. Good for you. Yeah, really. All right. Um, welcome back, folks. And we're talking monarchs. We're talking uh, pollinators today for your backyard garden. I want to show this map. Uh, Dolly just sent this to me this morning. Um, this is where the monarchs are right now. This is where they've been spotted in the Chicago area in the uh, general. Not along the lakefront. Anywhere around the lake. Hmm. Yeah, isn't what? that strange? Yeah. Maybe it's too cool. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. But as the Dolly, Dolly pointed out to me also, look at all the sightings in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Um, and, and not May, so much in Michigan. April, yeah, April 26th through May 23rd, it looks like. I'm trying yeah, to figure so out that was- that was from today, so it's um, it's today's map. There's there have been a lot of sightings around the southwest suburbs and even caterpillar signing, sightings, um, but I I would love to see more gardeners reporting their findings to Journey North because this data is very important to research. Yeah, I don't know that everybody knows that they can do that either. They might not, but anybody can do it. It started off as an organization that was um, uh, catering to teachers and teachers who had butterfly gardens at their schools. But now it's it's sort of anybody who sees monarch caterpillars, you can report eggs, you can report butterflies, you can report your first sighting of milkweed when it comes up out of the ground. It's it's a really cool thing. And, and doesn't Journey North also have Orioles and Robins and all sorts of other citizen science reports on it too yeah and blue whales too which is a, a fun oh, joke God, i right. like to say about you know sighting blue <laughs> whales in lake michigan you can put those on there if you want <laughs> oh, you're gonna do it <laughs> you can go look but i don't think yeah. you're gonna find them they do reporting of about a dozen species yeah there's well, you a... talked about 
sorry. just going to mention there's a number of organizations, and I have a link to Journey North at uh, my blog post, but there's also Monarch Joint Venture. There's Monarch Watch. If you go to World Wildlife Fund, uh, WWF, uh, there's the Save Our Monarchs Foundation, which is devoted to planting milkweed uh, like you mm-hmm. are, Dolly. So go ahead, Peggy. And, and all those links, by the way, are I've got them all linked uh, at my blog post. Yeah, no, I was just going to make the observation of, I know a little further west, I've seen milkweed up maybe two feet. But if I look in my garden, it's, if it's six inches tall at this point. So it's, even if there were monarchs, it's not like I have habitat for them yet. So it could be why we're not seeing a lot They'll lay eggs on tiny milkweed though. They will do it. They, they follow the milkweed emerging, you know, coming up from Texas all the way up through Canada. So they're, if, if they find it, they're going to lay eggs on it. They might not lay, you know, very many eggs on a six inch tall milkweed, but common milkweed grows so rapidly that yeah. it, it could go from six inches to, to 18 inches in less than a week. So it can support a caterpillar, even if they're starting to chew on it when it's six inches tall. Well, uh, since you and I talked the other day, we did uh, a little preview uh, of the show, which we posted on YouTube. Um, And uh, even since then, uh, I'm going out in my yard and looking at the milkweed coming up. And by the way, I have common milkweed. That's the only one I have in uh, my yard at the, uh, what's it, Syriaca, Syriaca, however you want to pronounce it. So there's some interesting things about Syriaca. Um, what some observers and researchers have found is that common milkweed that is growing on the edge of your garden, sort of in an open configuration where it's not crowded with a lot of stems of milkweed, where there's like one and then a few feet later, there's another and a few feet later, there's another. Those are the best chances for you to be able to observe eggs being laid and to find eggs and to observe caterpillars. And then um on the, so the milkweed that I have on the edge of my garden, which my lawn guys consistently try to weed whack out. To mow. To, oh, my goodness. Yeah. They're, they're getting better. They're getting better. They can identify <laughs> them. But um, those milkweed stems, those first milkweed stems that emerge are the largest. I have the biggest seed pods off of those that are the earliest to urge or to emerge. And then those are the ones that I find caterpillars and uh, butterflies laying eggs. And, but I always have stems that come up in the middle of my garden and those I never find eggs on. And that's, uh, it's just a really interesting thing that people started observing. So you don't want a milkweed patch in your garden that is 10 foot by 10 foot. And it is a hundred stems of common milkweed. You know, you want maybe four in that space because they have to be able to fly around the whole plant and up and under all of those leaves. And if it's too crowded, they just won't do it. Well, that makes me laugh because uh, as if you have any control over the Asclepius uh, uh, right. <laughs> syriaca that grows in, in your yard or the common milkweed. All right, let's get into that because there are different kinds of milkweed that I was not aware of. Um, yes. you told me the other day there are clumpers and there are ramblers. Now the common milkweed, uh, Asclepius syriaca is a rambler and that's because it's sending rhizomes out all over your yard. And what I found over the last few years, yep. And, uh, it'll, it'll come up where it wants to come up. And in my case, eh, if it's in a spot, I don't want, 
I just cut it back and sometimes I'll reach in and rip out part of the root, you know, along that area. It's going to come back. Uh, uh, two things, though. Uh, let's talk about ramblers versus clumpers. But you also say that uh, uh, common milkweed has a lifespan that at some point yeah. it, it'll give up the ghost. So it'll it'll take four years for common milkweed to mature in order for it to have a full flower and to get to its full height, which is about, um, if it's in full sun, it's going to be five to six feet tall. So in my hmm. garden, it's usually about five foot tall. It's just, you know, a little wow. bit shorter than me. And then um, it, it is a rambler. A lot of people will call it invasive. That's incorrect. Invasive is a word that we, in the horticulture and the agriculture world, we reserve that for plants that are exotic. They are not from this continent that are coming in and they are invasive because they are spreading around, they are doing their thing, but they are pushing out our native species. And since Syriaca is a native species, we don't consider it doing that. What it is is an aggressive spreader, but you can also think of it as a rambler. I think I like that word better because it, it does. It, it, it doesn't spread consistently through the garden, but it will, it will be in this place this year Next year, it's going to come up way over here, you know, and then yep. the next year it's going to go down to another spot in the garden. So my theory, and this is not scientific at all, my theory is that it's probably a really nutrient-hungry plant. And once it uses the nutrients in its space, it's going to move to a new space. So, but that's not scientific by any means. So don't take me for my word. Don't come at me. <laughs> but um, Syriaca has some really great attributes, though. One of the best is that it's it's a great caterpillar plant. It's great for observing caterpillars and butterflies. There are a lot of different insects that use that plant as a home. So it um, it's useful for that, for giving habitat for other species. Um, unfortunately, one of those is the oleander aphids, so we just kind of have to deal with those. But one of the best attributes of this plant is their fragrance of their flowers, which is so beautiful it's like lilacs and gardenia mixed together it's it's very powerful it's very beautiful in the evening um the more milkweed you have the more scent you have i think it's even better than the orion pet uh lilies the big big fancy uh oriental lilies that are known for their fragrance i think it's better than those well yeah some of those lilies you have to be careful because you'll they'll asphyxiate you um it's like trying to bring it <laughs> exactly like yeah. you know trying to bring in a hyacinth uh or or one of those oriental lilies in your house no don't do that uh that's yeah. <laughs> you'll you'll never breathe again uh but uh let's talk uh, you you talk about other critters uh there are also milkweed beetles that will show up uh on yeah. on milkweed and um and bees love it as well, pollinators. Um, so there's a lot of good yeah. reasons to have it. If you're concerned about it being crazy, well, maybe you want to get a clumper. What are the clumping milkweeds? So one of my favorite clumping varieties that you can substitute common milkweed for is prairie milkweed, and that's Asclepius sullivantii. And Asclepius sullivantii, I think, is going to probably be one of those varieties that's going to start appearing in the uh, commercial trade where we have seen common before. And by commercial trade, I mean in the native plant world, because um, you are you are never probably going to find common milkweed in a regular garden center, like a regular conventional garden center. I wish we could, um, but and maybe we will in the future. But anyway... Prairie, I think, is going to be the one that's going to come in more because prairie is, it's it spreads a little bit, but 
what it does is it makes a colony. It doesn't spread and ramble and go all over the garden like common milkweed. It will stay in a pretty, pretty big um, area and slowly spread. And then eventually the original plant is going to die. Now, common milkweed, I find I have found in obs observing my garden, common milkweed's lifespan is about seven to eight years. And then you will either see it completely disappear if you're consistently collecting all the seeds, or if you let, you know, every five years, if you let a seed pod go, you're going to see some new seedlings. So you're always going to have common milkweed. You don't ever want with, with all these milkweeds, you don't ever want to have every single seed pod on the plant release its seeds because um, then you might have a lot of seedlings all over your yard and you might not want that. <laughs> um, but Prairie but milkweed is known for receiving. Yeah. I didn't catch that, Peggy. Mike, what you call the milkweed bomb. Oh, yeah, yeah. milkweed bombs, which I've been known to throw into my neighbor's yards. Um, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just, <laughs> you know that, that's what you do. And by the way, here's, I just I hap I happened to find an image. This is what you were just talking about. The prairie yes. milkweed. Now yes. that looks a lot like common milkweed. Yeah, it's very similar. Uh, the flower cluster is a lot more open, uh, or sorry, sorry, it's more stiff, whereas the common milkweed flower uh, cluster is a lot more like a ball, and it's it's a little bit more floppy than the the sullivantii, and um, the sullivantii is a little shorter. It has that really wide midrib. Sometimes the midrib up the middle of the leaf is red. Um, they're very, very smooth, uh, smooth leaves. And in the botany world, we call them glabrous uh, because they're kind of bluish, greenish. But they're very smooth. They're not furry like the common milkweed seeds. And it's another one that's great for caterpillars. Um, so you can feed this to your caterpillars or, or let the caterpillars live on your plant and... Um, just let them do their thing. I was yeah. not so familiar with. I was going to say it is available by seed, I, but like you said, I haven't seen it at the nursery centers really. No, no, and this is the the second year that I'll be selling it at my house at my plant sale, and um, so I'll have plenty of it this year. Oh well, speaking of that, we might as well uh, talk about this. This is uh, you growing various kinds <laughs> it, it, this reminds me of uh, craig lahulier our mm. our tomato guy who's going to be by the way next week uh the 5th of june it's tomato mania oh. five Five? okay wow. yeah it's tomato mania five with craig lahulier and and kc tomato um, get your tomato questions because uh, not we're not only launching into farmers market season. We're not only launching into monarch season. We're launching into tomato season. Um, it's all at the same time. But uh, tell us about your sale, Dolly. Well, this is just this is all the milkweed right now. This picture was taken about a week ago, and um, I've got a few allium there for sale too. But I have a lot of different native plants, about thirty different native plants that I'm selling this year, and um, a, I think I'm selling seven varieties of milkweed. So swamp milkweed, pink and white, uh, prairie milkweed, showy milkweed, common milkweed. I have a little bit of poke milkweed, a tiny bit of spider milkweed, very limited varieties on that. Butterfly weed, world milkweed. So I, I have all different kinds for different spaces. There is definitely, no matter what kind of garden you have, no matter what size your garden is, 
there is definitely a milkweed that will be appropriate for your yard to attract monarch butterflies. Uh, you mentioned one that I was not familiar with, which is poke milkweed, and here's a photo of that. Um, yeah, and this picture I got from the monarchbutterflygarden.net website, which is a really great resource for not only milkweed plants, for information about milkweeds. Um, the person who runs this website is Tony Gomez. He's a really, really good guy, very generous with information, answers all your questions. And um, if you're interested in learning about lots of different milkweeds, his website is probably better than mine because <laughs> this is what he does is his job full time. And so he was nice enough to let me borrow his pictures. So poke milkweed's a great milkweed that is um, full sun to part shade. It's four to six feet tall, just like the common milkweed. And uh, caterpillars will appear on this plant. The eggs will be laid on this plant. And it's more of a small colonizer, so it doesn't ramble like common milkweed, but it will spread a little bit like prairie milkweed. Um, but it's a good alternative if you have a shady yard, you know, dappled sun, ah. part shade, half day sun. So this could be a possibility for your yard, Mike. That I, sounds like, can you save one of those for me? <laughs> I, of course I, I can. I, uh, well, I want <laughs> you to then. You save one of those. Uh, in fact... Save okay. a couple, a couple, especially if you said it'll spread, uh, then it'll be great. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to have a couple yeah. of those. Can you pick up, pick up one for me too, please? Uh, sure. Um, and uh, here's another one. Which one oh, is this? Yeah. This one is spider milkweed, which is also called green antelope horn. So it's, it, and all of the na all of the milkweeds that I'm talking about today, these are all native to Illinois. This one is probably more commonly seen in Southern Illinois where it's a little hotter because this is also a really popular milkweed in um, Texas and Oklahoma, those kind of areas where it's a little bit more open, a little hotter during the summer. But green antelope horn um, in Texas, it, it's, it's making seed pods like right now. It's really, really early because it comes up in February. But um, this is a full sun to part shade plant it can tolerate our winters. It goes to zone four and we're zone five. So zone four is colder. It's two to three feet tall and um, it's a clumper. So and it, so it's really low growing. It's got this beautiful green flower. Um, it's a little shorter. So and it can take some part shade. So it needs some sun during the day, but it can take the part shade. Uh, and that's the spider milkweed. Spider milkweed, yeah. All right, spider milkweed, spider milkweed does whatever. <laughs> oh yeah, never mind. Uh, so, uh, all right, you were mentioning some shade plants, and obviously, you can attract uh, butterflies and other pollinators with lots of. There's lots of sun plants. That's there's a tyranny of the sun plants, but for those of <laughs> us who are in the uh, uh, in the suburbs and in the city. I mean, look, you can do this. That's, that's easy. Okay. You know, the Leatris, that's great. Um, you can do this. Look at all that sun. That's just uh great stuff. And well, I, mean, in, I mean, some of that is because the butterflies need the sun. Well, true. Yeah. The insects need the sun. For the uh, yes, that, that is true. Um, and, uh, but, uh, there are some plants that you can plant, uh, and attract pollinators, even in part shade areas. I wouldn't recommend full shade. Uh, so you told me you were going to have a list of that, Dolly. Yes. 
So I found 20 plants that you can grow in part shade that will attract uh, all different kinds of pollinators and butterflies. So it's um, spring things like uh, wild columbine and golden ragwort, which is a really cool gold, um, ground cover. Uh, white turtle head is a cool plant. If you if you want to go with turtle head, go with the white, which is the native, because that will attract the butterflies. And it ha it produces seed. Pink one does not. Violets. If you have just wood violets in your neighborhood, get some into your garden, um, even in your lawn. I, I don't care if there's violets in my garden or my lawn because they I, attract I, flies. That's, that's I, most of my front lawn. It's, uh, yeah. it's, isn't that uh, home for fritillaria? Uh, mm -hmm. Violets? So. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. oh there's the kitty. Hello. Okay. <laughs> okay, hi, Finn. Say hi, Finn. Uh, all right, hold Say on. Bye, there we, oh, bye, Finn. Where's Legato? <laughs> oh, Legato, Legato's hiding. There's Finn. Oh, look at that. There's Finn. It's been. He's I one of my stories that I. Oh hi! Oh, <laughs> giving me a. You're you're, me a kiss, you're, huh? you're being totally yeah. upstaged. All you're right. All right. Back to the plants. Um, Black-eyed Susans can take a half-day sun. Uh, giant hyssop, which is Agastache. Uh, Cardinal lobelia, blue lobelia. He sees himself in the camera. Uh, let's see. There are two different goldenrod, three different goldenrods that can take some shade: wreath goldenrod, zigzag goldenrod, and showy goldenrod. And showy goldenrod, I have in my garden. God, cat, <laughs> I never do this. Showy goldenrod, I have in my garden, and I really love it. That was that that photo that you showed of the large goldenrod ah. with the butterfly on it. It's a clumper. It doesn't run through the garden. It's not obnoxious at all. I, I absolutely love it. The flowers are gorgeous. And, and the important thing about golden, the goldenrod and New England aster are very important to monarch butterflies because these are the two plants that they feed off of during the migration back to Mexico. So it's mm -hmm. really important for you if you're going to have a native plant garden that is going to be uh, for monarchs and for butterflies in general, Jesus cat, um, <laughs> then, then you want to have New England aster and you want to have some sort of goldenrod, but don't ever just pick goldenrod and plant it from the side of the road because that's the kind that spreads very well. Very and that's the kind that showed up in my yard. Uh, and uh, yeah, and I've been dealing with that, but that's okay. You know, again, if if your yard is small enough, you can you can uh, really manage it's that. Small, if yeah. if you have a huge yard, yeah, that that might be an issue. Yes, Peggy. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, so I've got zigzag. Um, it grows beyond part shade. It, in my yard, it even grows in full shade. Mm -hmm. And last year, it was still going early November. So it's one of the yeah, last. I don't doubt flowers. it. It's loaded with pollinators. <laughs> Well, it's, yeah, it's not a tall plant. I'll tell you two plants that will do well in part shade uh, that you haven't mentioned. Coneflower is one, yep. Uh, yep. and and uh, Monarda. Uh, it, Monarda, no, Didyma is the one yeah. that uh, I grow. Uh, I don't know how well Fistulosa will do in part shade, but uh, it. Uh, but I do know that Monarda Didyma uh, will do well in in part shade well so. i didn't want to put the most obvious ones on here 
Okay. Um, but some people see. might and not know, one, know that. Okay. Just saying. Well, that's true. That's true. Another one that um, I have in my garden that I really love very much. A lot of people like creeping flocks. Yeah. You know, the, uh-huh. the garden centers have out these big pans full of creeping flocks every spring. But it takes a really long time for that to grow and spread. And it, it's not native. But Flax divaritica, which is wood, blue wood flax, is a native. And it's a really beautiful, small blue. It's got light blue flowers, but it's really fragrant. It's really nice in the spring. It blooms right after the tulips. Geranium maculatum, which is a native geranium. Actually, both native geraniums. They attract bees. Amsonia can take shade. Both species. Oh, really? Okay, because I was looking yeah. at... I saw some Amsonia growing the other day, and I thought, well, I can't grow that. I don't have enough sun. But if it'll take some shade, that's great. Okay. You can probably grow the one that has the fat leaf, which I think... Oh, I think that might be Montana. I'd have to look that up. And then Heuchera. There are native Heuchera species that are not only attractive to tiny little bees, but they can be attractive to hummingbirds. And then Helenium, which is the dogtooth daisy or seasweed, that can take half day. And I have that in my garden. And it likes moisture. So if you have moist soil, woo, that guy's going to get big. But it's gorgeous at the end of the season. Absolutely beautiful. All right. I want to show something that you sent me. And this is just uh, pretty amazing. This is what happens if you're growing plants that monarchs and other pollinators like. This Is is this your side yard? What are we looking at, Dolly? This is a butterfly garden that I planted at my oh. old job oh, okay. um, that that the building manager asked for. They asked for a butterfly garden. And this is Liatris ligulostylus, I'm, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Some of the species I have a hard time keeping track of. But I think this is ligulostylus, which is meadow blazing star. And this is a September blooming Liatris. The interesting thing about Liatris is there's more to life than just cobalt which is a great one for the summer. It's, it's speciosa. It is uh, a native R of our native species. But there's about 11 species that are native to our area that will grow. And if you grow a number of these different species of liatris, you will have liatris for about nine weeks instead of just for two. So there's that advantage of putting some natives in. And then the other advantage is that ligula stylus is like that and liatris scariosa which is the northern blazing star, those are both magnets for monarchs at the end of the season in September, right when the migration starts. So if you want to see monarchs, wild monarchs, you know, coming through your yard, and those monarchs came to that garden, it was a crisp, like, 62-degree day. It was very, very sunny that day. The next day it was dark and cloudy, and those monarchs had moved on. They Mm. were gone. So... um, They need places to come and respite and refuel during the migration back. And so these late season perennial um, natives are really important. All right. Here's one. This is in my backyard last September. Uh, Speaking of late season, and and this is not a native, unfortunately. It's a heptacodium. um, And uh, but still what you'll see. Well, the monarchs have found our heptacodium tree right here in the middle of Chicago in Logan Square, the heptacodium is great because it blooms in the fall and the birds, uh, rather the the bees and the bumblebees and the monarchs love it. And about half a dozen of the monarchs have found their way here and they're stocking up for their ride and their migration south. And that plant... That's really cool. That was a lot. Yeah, it was. I mean, and, and you can't even imagine how many bees are on 
that plant. And one, it's one of the things I look forward to in the fall because it is a late bloomer. And one of the cool things about Heptacodium, uh, sometimes called Seven Suns tree, it has the white blooms and then they fade to pink. And I've seen big uh, species or big uh, examples of this tree where you, it just looks pink uh, from a distance uh, because that's what happens to the flowers when they finish. So... All right. Uh, what have we missed? I'm wondering if there's any any of the photos. Oh, yes. Before we get going, we have to show this. All right. Uh, you, <laughs> you and a few friends there, there. All right. This is because, and, and let's go very briefly about raising monarchs. You raised some. Um, at, in the last few years, there have been warnings uh, from uh, organizations about raising monarchs, meaning that you shouldn't do it in great numbers. Uh, because it's, it probably does more harm than good. You can do a few, and, and certainly for educational purposes, and that's kind of what you do, isn't it, Dolly? Yeah, that's that's kind of where I've gone to, is that I'm just raising monarchs for the special events that I'm going to, like Monarch Fest and things like that, and, and you know, a few for family parties and things like that, but um, I'm not raising as many as I used to, and it, you know... I believe, I fully believe every healthy butterfly is important and valuable, but you just, you have to be careful if you're raising monarchs and all of them are dying every time you try it, then it might be time to give it up or reduce the numbers that you are raising um, and just raise five at a time, just five, because you're more likely to be able to keep everything clean and keep them alive if you raise them five at a time, all in separate containers and uh, do this a couple times during the summer so that you can see the, the monarch, um, the life cycle and the metamorphosis. So you can show it to your children, share it with your grandkids. My brother raises them with his grandkids and my sister-in-law, and they absolutely love doing this. And the, the girls love it too. And I, at one point I had like four people in my family doing this. They were having so much fun. My dad was doing it with his wife and they were just really having a great time doing it. Um, and the thing is, though, is that you want to make sure that they're going to be healthy when you go to release them. And there are some risk factors of doing it in the house. So don't collect every single egg. Don't feel compelled to collect every single egg. You don't have to. Collect just a few if you want to raise just a few. Um, but leave most of them out for nature. Make sure that you have enough nectar plants out in the garden for the butterflies. Make sure you have enough common milkweed out there and other milkweeds out there to feed the caterpillars. Do your observations outside. You can be part of the Field Museum Monarch um, tracking and reporting uh, group that is just starting their training. So you can look that up on the Field Museum website. Um, another resource that you can get some information. Hmm? For the Kellogg Action Center on the Field Museum site. Yes. Yes. And then another organization I wanted to mention was the Illinois Monarch Project which is um, an organization that I was part of when I was working. And that is an organization that is promoting and um, helping organizations and towns all over Illinois to get on board with growing milkweed. They're working with the tollway, the road authorities all over the state, and they are working on the Route 66 uh, flyway project. So things are happening in Illinois that are going in positive directions as far as milkweed is going. Um, so I, I find that very hopeful. I, I do, I do. And people are, becoming a monarch gardener is becoming more important. And, and becoming a monarch garden, 
is more important than just raising butterflies and caterpillars. It's so important to provide habitat and you can provide habitat in your own yard. But once you start to get to know what you're doing and um, learn more about it, then start sharing it with people. Share it with your neighbors. Put a sign up in your garden that says that you're a monarch way station. You know, join wild ones and share it with your church and start a monarch garden in your church and start one at your local school and start one at the local parks. Go to your park districts. Ask for butterfly gardening in your park districts. And you might be able to work with them very well and be a partner with them. If you're willing to help take care of the garden, the park districts might be willing to actually help install and pay for the plants. You just have to, you know, make inquiries. See, you may have to get a grant or something, but um, but get out there and share this. Because I think that the idea, the idea that we're going to restore all of the milkweed in the farmland is, is not going to happen. However... If we think of the Midwest as a giant lake and we think of all of the small monarch gardens and habitats that we are taking care of all over the Midwest as small ponds, lily pads on those ponds, that means that the monarch population can jump from garden to garden to habitat to habitat to habitat to habitat. It might not all be one big long string of habitat, but smaller habitat that is spread around in a pretty consistent way is going to help. So I just wanted to stress that. Well, and I also want to ask you if folks want to get in on your uh, milkweed sale, how do they, how do they do that? Given that you live in Indiana, how are how are you doing this? Well, I live right on the border, so it's not hard to get to me. Um, I'm not going to do any deliveries unless it's a really special case, but I, uh, I am going to open my sale on June 11th and 12th at my house. And you can email me at plantsale at hortforyou.net. And you can get the plant list. I'll give it to you and we can talk. Uh, in fact, we, we have some Indiana viewers here, so that might be good. And, of course, you, they can always go to hortforyou.net in, in general to uh, to see what you're up to. Uh, Dolly, Thank you so much uh, for being on the show. And uh, yeah, folks, if you want the Monarchs to keep going, if you want that number to go up another 35%, which would be even better uh, mm-hmm. for next year, plant some milkweed. Um, so uh, keep up the work. All right, Dolly, thanks. Have a great Sunday. We'll talk to you soon. You too. Thanks for having me, guys. Our pleasure. Love being on. All right. All right well, right, we're. Bye-bye. We, we we kept you late. We're running over. We need to get to Bob Benenson from Local Food Forum. <laughs> All, right. All right. We will do that next. Please, please stick around. Good morning, Dr. Drew. How are you doing today? Good morning, Victor. I'm doing well. Thanks. Right here, we have uh, a canker on the stem of this chestnut oak, and it's kind of got this dark staining around it. I just want to ask you, when we encounter an oozing canker on the trunk of a tree, what should our first step be? The first step's got to be to figure out what's causing it. It may be something relatively benign, like a bacterial infection, or it could be something more serious, like a Phytophthora disease. And you know Phytophthora can be bad because that word actually means plant destroyer in Greek. Okay, so it sounds like we would love to rule that out. So how can you tell the difference? 
Well, first try and find where that oozing's coming from. If it's coming from an obvious wound, a crack, a split, or a boring insect hole, then it's probably bacterial. You can also give it a bit of a sniff because the bacteria would actually be feeding and fermenting the sap in the tree. And so it's going to smell a little bit sour or alcoholic or fermented. Interesting. So what if it smells normal and I can't find a wound or a hole? At that point, it's more likely to be Phytophthora, but you're going to have to take a sample and submit it to a lab for testing because there's no way to 100% verify Phytophthora in the field. Okay, so let's say that it's confirmed Phytophthora. What do we do now? At that point, we want to combine some cultural treatments with some direct management options. There are stem and soil applied materials that we use to manage Phytophthora, and then also cultural things. Cultural things such as what? Well, Phytophthora thrives in saturated soil. So you want to look at irrigation, you want to look at improving drainage, adding organic matter, and mulching the surface. So well-drained soil? organic matter like compost and then maybe on mulching. Sounds perfect. But it all starts with a correct diagnosis, right? Exactly. All right, Dr. Drew, I want to thank you once again for your time. And as always, thanks for being a resource for our arborists here at Bartlett Tree Experts. Thanks, Victor. It's a pleasure. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a soup-son of humor. Or is that a dash? Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root of bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music, porches, lawn Give me all that I can. And welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. There's our buddy Bob Bennettson. And uh, Bob, uh, don't worry. We're going to give you your your due here. We ran late on the. <laughs> oh, wait. And now, see, now I don't know why yeah, your mic. Yeah, let's get the mic on. Oh, got to find it. Blah, blah, blah. No, it is on. You are, you are on. Are you muted? Okay, I was muted on my end, but I, ah, I clicked it and I wanted to make sure that uh, my voice, uh, my uh, ghostly voice, didn't appear in your earlier segment. Ooh. Although I know that. Can't and I was, yeah. you know, I was thinking of the uh, the Bartlett spot there, uh, and it gives a whole new meaning to the uh, phrase "scratch and sniff." So, uh, <laughs> yeah. in fact, I I now know you know about a hundred percent more. Uh, about, about cankers than I ever knew before. That's right. <laughs> I, I've got to go out and look for cankers on my tree today. All right. Of course, there's a tree out in front that I would just like to. Yeah. Never mind. Uh, we won't. We won't. We won't go in that direction. Hey. Why is Mike sniffing the trees? That's right. Uh, <laughs> welcome, Bob Bennison from uh, Local Food Forum. Uh, boy, this That's is really weird. There's like two of me. Oh, I I can. Uh, oh, I guess I got to fix that. Okay, la di da. We're doing CGI on the Mike Novak show with Peggy Malecki now. Uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, let's see if we set I'll that. Just, up. I won't move. Let's 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 not interrupt. You know, yeah, you that. should. Uh, yeah, see, I, I can do I that. There we go. There we go. So more than one of me. Um, <laughs> and uh, 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 Bob, this has got to be a great time of year for you. 
it's a great time of year for me and everybody else who yeah, loves local food and loves nature and, you know, loves being in Chicago at a time when, you know, everything is coming back to life. It's just, um, it's an amazing experience. It really is. Um, your quick anecdote, uh, I'm coming up in the, probably next week on the 40th anniversary of my first visit to Chicago. I grew up in New York. I lived in Washington, D.C. Um, but I uh, fell in love with this wonderful woman from Illinois, and we started visiting Chicago um, 40 years ago. And my mental image of Chicago was not spot on because, you know, that was at the time that we were developing the Rust Belt in the Midwest. And I kind of thought that Chicago was going to be a funkier place than uh, it turned out to be um, because nobody really talked outside of Chicago about the amazing natural environment in which the city is set. So uh, Barb, I grew up on a farm south of Chicago. We came driving up uh, and you hit Lakeshore Drive and you get past the museum campus. And all of a sudden there, the lake is opened up on the right. And on the left, you had Buckingham Fountain and Grand Park and the skyline. And I was just smitten with this place almost immediately. Then I went to a game at Wrigley Field uh, later that day and, and that kind of clinched it. Um, so, you know, that's kind of how I developed this uh, interest in nature photography. And it's also why Chicago grew and grew and grew on me. So when my career in Washington, D.C. kind of was winding down, it was a very easy decision to make to move to Chicago. Wow. And you went to see the Cubs when they actually had a major league baseball team. Um, now it's just, sort of. this, this was 1982. So it's kind of, Oh, just okay. Before. No, they were, they were in the minor leagues then too. And they're it, back to it, the minor leagues now. Yeah. It, 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 in fact, uh, they were playing the San Diego Padres and the pitcher had the, uh, kind of interesting name of Juan Eichelberger. And, mm-hmm. um, he, he almost pitched a no hitter against the Cubs um, there was a dubious hometown official scorers ruling that called what should have been an error, a hit. The Cubs did score a run on, you know, without getting a hit, <laughs> but, um, and the Cubs lost three to one. So wow. I was already well on my way to becoming a, a diehard Cubs fan because I knew the, I knew the drill. Uh, well, we can, we can, uh, disabuse yeah, you of that. From the jaws of victory. Yes. Yeah. Special. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Exactly. So uh, uh, I was reading your newsletter the other day, uh, and I cannot believe how many different farmers markets uh, there are in our region. And most of them, well, now they're all opening up. Uh, you, you you mentioned a bunch that are opening this weekend. Um, uh, today is the 29th, um, and a lot open for the Memorial Day weekend. But even more are opening next week in the first yeah. week of June. Week during the week as well. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, uh, Green City Market did something unprecedented this year and started their season in April. There are other handful of markets that uh, start their seasons in April. And then in May, almost all the, I hate to use the term because it sounds like we're, uh, you know, separating into uh, categories, but the bigger name ones, you know, uh, Logan Square and Wicker Park and Evanston um, and some of the others, they open up in May. But for the most part, most of our markets don't open up until June. And obviously the reason for that is, you know, the seasons, the beginning of the um, growing season tends to shift a little bit year to year, depending on the weather, climate change, whatever, whatever is going on. 
naturally. And uh, this year we had a cool rainy April, May. Some of the crops are coming in a little bit late. But for the most part, you're not going to get a real critical mass of locally grown, outdoor grown produce until June. So for the markets, especially, you know, community markets, uh, smaller city markets that, um, you know, don't have the kind of huge population to support uh, an early season market, it only made sense for them to, and, and continues to make sense for them, to open in June. So um, this week we had eight new openings. Next week, starting tomorrow, we have 27. And then it's going to be double digits every week through June until we get to, you know, one of these days I'm going to have to make a, a full accounting, but I think it's close to 100 uh, farmers markets just within the Chicago metro area. Yikes. So there's no reason, you know, not to be able to, to get to a market. Uh, this is at uh, Division Street. West Side B-Boys, we've had them on on the show before. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a good friend of mine from my family farm days. And uh, um, the funny uh, funny story there is, is that eight years ago, I went to a Cubs game and I got a bobblehead doll of Red Grange, the famous University of Illinois and Chicago Bears football player of a century ago. Yeah. And um, I just didn't have an emotional attachment to it. In fact, they never took it out of the box. So we're doing a little <laughs> cleaning here. And I just posted on Facebook, took a flyer, and I said, would anybody be interested in this bobblehead? And Thad has a collection of Chicago Bears memorabilia. So I brought him the, uh, I, I, I introduced him to Red Grange yesterday, and he was kind enough in trade to give, and I didn't ask certainly, to give me two jar, big jars of his amazing honey, golden rod and orange blossom. And uh, uh, it's just incredible stuff that he uh, uh, produces in beehives that, uh, that he uh, maintains uh, mostly on the on the south side of Chicago. So uh, that, he's a, he's an awesome, cool dude. Uh, Thad, yeah, I've had him on the show before. Yeah, uh, and uh, here's uh, from Green City Market. So uh, we're seeing honey, obviously. What are what are some of the uh, vegetables? I'm seeing radishes there. What else am I looking at? Is that rhubarb? That's rhubarb on the right. Yeah. Um, you know, asparagus is always first. Now it's just ubiquitous at the markets. We were waiting and waiting and waiting, waiting, and now there's big piles of asparagus everywhere you look. Rhubarb is usually the crop that comes in next. And so that's an outdoor grown um, crop. Uh, the rest of the stuff you're seeing is, and this is a notable phenomenon, is that more and more farmers, Froman uh, especially, has these huge hoop houses. And so they're growing basically undercover. So that early season, you know, rain, cold, whatever it is, you know, drenching storms, doesn't affect those crops. So that's why you're seeing, and this is my market haul from yesterday, uh, you've got uh, spinach from uh, uh, Nichols Farm and Market. You've got Kale, um, one of these is from Nichols, and the other is from a farm in Michigan. His name is new, and its name is escaping me right now, which is embarrassing, but uh, it will come to me. Um, asparagus from uh, McClug Farms. Um, uh, mushrooms from River Valley Ranch. River Valley, uh, mushrooms, of course, are something that grow all year because they're, they're indoor grown. And then um, some pastries from Versinade Patisserie, and uh, two uh Packages of bratwurst and one of Italian sausage because we're having company for um, Memorial Day uh, tomorrow. 
And um, just recently, I, I didn't think I could possibly need another piece of cast iron cookware until my wife stumbled upon a cast iron sausage pan. And <laughs> this thing, absolutely amazing. It really is. Sausage, you know, <clears throat> love sausages, love to cook them. Uh, you know, you don't have a grill, so it's all stovetop. And the problem is that <clears throat> they tend to curl up. So when you're trying to cook that side that's curled, you have to, like, press them down. Yeah, them yeah, yeah. So this thing, they, they stay straight. Ah. So highly recommended for you sausage fans out there. And yeah, more- and uh, this, this is Iron Creek Farm, also a green city market, a certified organic farm from uh, LaPorte, Indiana. And right in the middle there, you're seeing another major phenomenon. And we've talked about this on the show before. But um, the quality of indoor-grown heirloom tomatoes has just improved dramatically. The the farmers must have developed technique or just the uh, hoop house technology. But, you know, until last year, really, these these, these things have been around for a while, but until last year, I said, eh, indoors, how good can they be? You know, because I'm sure like you, Mike, grew up in – uh, you know, mom brought home those little trays of rock hard indoor yeah, grown tomatoes, yeah. and that would that were more suitable for batting practice than for eating. And uh, and so I just kind of wrote it off, and then I tried them, and they are just unbelievable how good they, they are. are. They are good. Uh, the other thing my mom yeah. did was uh, cook broccoli uh, uh, until it turned to mush. And I didn't even know that yeah. you could eat. I didn't even know you could eat raw broccoli until I was uh, an adult, which is really sad. But uh, totally. And, 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 you know, I don't remember. And my mom was a great cook and I, I got my cooking Jones from her. But I don't remember her ever roasting vegetables. And I mean, that's just a staple for me. And I, I always say that roasted vegetables are the easiest, delicious things you can make. You just put them in a pan, slap some, you know, oil or butter on them, um, uh, uh, season them to taste, stick them in the oven, and you got this great meal, you know, uh, in, in a half an hour to 45 minutes. And we shouldn't forget that one of the great things about farmer's markets uh, is that it's, it's, it's an activity you can do outdoors. Um, it's, it's a festival. Uh, really each week and uh, even uh, now with uh, some you know COVID numbers going back up so if you want to shop outdoors this is the way to do it the festival vibe is you know even if you're not an ingrained you know local food good food person yet you will be if you go to the farmer's market I've always said it was the gateway to becoming a good food movement activist because um, most of us again growing up you know, the food we ate came from thousands of miles away or hundreds of miles away. It sat in a warehouse. No, no, it, no. My food came, from, came the, from a can. No, I was going to say it came from the freezer. That's where it came <laughs> from. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, it loses vitality. It loses some of its uh, nutrition uh, load. And you uh, get a carrot or a peach or asparagus or whatever it is that was picked yesterday. It hasn't even sat in a, in a warehouse or in storage. You are eating food as our grandparents and our great grandparents and older generations did because, you know, before the industrialization of our and centralization of our food system, what we know is the conventional food system today, you know, what was, what did you call local food? You called it food. Most people grew, uh, grew up 
generations ago eating food that was produced locally. It was, uh, you know, uh, the refrigerated shipment wasn't that common. You didn't have airplanes flying in fish from the, the coast. So you ate whatever, whatever, whatever your local farmers grew. And so we've kind of gone back to that for, you know, not only for the issue of taste, which is, all, which is fundamental. I mean, if it doesn't taste good, nobody's going to eat it. But, um, uh, you know, for environmental reasons, for economic reasons, reviving our, our rural communities, providing job opportunities, um, helping small businesses, because farmers are small businesses. They're entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Why would we not want to support them? to support our local economies. Everybody knows that uh, lo- dollars spent locally have a bigger impact than dollars spent and sent to you know uh, corporate headquarters hundreds or thousands of miles or overseas away. So, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's all good. But that festival vibe, you know, those people didn't look like they were shopping at Jewel. <laughs> they didn't look like they were fun. They brought yeah. their dogs. Well, I like to, they don't like you to bring your dogs into supermarkets. Um, uh, they're rolling around with their 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 babies around in strollers. Um, uh, they're they got wagons and they're pulling their their little pugs along in their wagons. So it's fun. It is fun. It's it's a break in your week that so, enables you to just go out there and enjoy. So one of the things folks can do if they want to find out where the various farmers markets are, and you know, it's interesting. I. I, I remember in years past, you'd see the list of them in the Trib or the Sun-Times, but now mm-hmm. you can just go to uh, a localfoodforum.substack.com. Yeah, and- absolutely. Thank you. I, I love the bell. Um, uh, yeah, I want to schedule every Monday uh, you know, for the full week. It's going to get very, very long starting this week. So please have patience and keep scrolling. But um, uh, also, you know, because of capacity and space, I'm only able to do this for the uh, Chicago region. That, that's writ large. It's basically any county in Illinois that's in the Chicago metropolitan area, maybe stretched a little. But uh, the Illinois Farmers Market Association, um, also, also known as ILFMA, um, has an um, interactive map where you can find farmers markets throughout the entire state of Illinois. And there are more than 300 of them. So um, if you're um, in Peoria or if you're in Champaign or if you're in Carbondale and want to know where you're uh, uh, where to shop locally, that's that's your resource there. All right. Um, before we, we move on, there's a, some policy and I know we can't get too deep into this, but uh, you were writing just in the past couple of days about uh, a couple of things. One of them is the World Business Chicago um, City's public-private economic development agency, uh, and it held something called the Future of Food Summit. Uh, were you able to attend that, or did you monitor that? I, I was able to attend it wearing my other hat. I do uh, contract work for Naturally Chicago, which is a, non, a nonprofit sort of trade association that um, works to uh, connect entrepreneurs, investors, um, service providers, uh, equity partners, uh, uh, mentors, to help create even more energy behind the fast-growing local uh, uh, good food and natural product uh, uh, sector. Uh, This is the CPG sector, meaning consumer packaged goods. So, you know, on Local Food Forum, I'm mostly covering farmers and farmers markets and fresh uh, uh, local food 
uh, naturally Chicago uh, covers the other bases, which is uh, um, uh, the uh, the consumer packaged goods. And you know, we really have a thriving, growing community. Um, it got rugged during COVID, but a lot most of the companies that uh, naturally Chicago has worked with have, have survived and they're growing. Um, again, going, uh, uh, talking about something that we've already uh, talked about many times, but when the pandemic hit, the interest in good food, better food, better for people, better for the planet food, uh, really increased uh, dramatically. Part of it was the fact that with the supply chain problems and the breakdowns that occurred early in the pandemic and now are repeating themselves uh, you know, in this inflationary cycle that we're in now, um, uh, it, local food provided food security. It was the first time in you know, most people's lifetimes uh, in America that they faced a kind of challenge, you know, finding food. You know, you could just go to the supermarket and a lot of places 24-7 and get whatever you wanted. And that wasn't the case. But uh, also the consumer uh, concerns about food and wellness, food and health, food and sustainability, its impact on the environment, because people started reconsidering everything in the midst of this uh, huge um, uh, pandemic crisis. Um, a lot of people's concern, you know, concerns which weren't didn't come to the forefront about animal welfare. How are we treating our livestock, our animals? That became a big uh, concern as well. So it's all feeding into this ecosystem that um, that's supporting not only farmers and farmers markets, but also um, uh, these innovative products. And that's basically what the um, uh, Food Summit was about. It was part of a series of events that uh, uh, World Business Chicago and public-private agency that's run by the city of Chicago has put on for years. And then, of course, they had the two-year hi- hiatus during um, COVID. But, you know, it just occurred to everybody all at once, it seems, because they, they discussed the process. Um, uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, was one of the speakers of how this uh, summit came to be. And it was, um, they said, food is just fundamental over and over again, speakers refer to it. And a phrase that we've used at Naturally Chicago for, and, and I use for local food forum, as Chicago is an epicenter of innovation and growth in the food industry. We have, uh, on the big food side, we have so, uh, some of the biggest Fortune 500 food companies in the United States. On the smaller side, you have this huge um, uh, advancing movement towards better products uh, and, 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 and better food. So um, this is stimulating a lot of investment interest, and that's basically what the Food Summit was meant to promote, was greater investment in this sector. You know, when it comes to environmental matters and, and food, uh, local food is certainly an environmental matter. Um, it Usually the Midwest is the slowest. It, we're, we're the last people to get on board. The East and the West Coasts uh, are involved. But it sounds like we're uh, at the forefront of this, that, uh, as you mentioned, we're a hub for this kind of innovation. Yeah, and um, you're hearing more and more people talk about regenerative agriculture. And I happen to be on the leadership council of an organization called uh, Regenerate Illinois. So we've got this going on increasingly. Uh, basically, the um, the real foundation of regenerative agriculture, which is an extension of uh, on organic growing, is 
uh, soil health, protecting uh, our soils from uh, erosion and protecting the um, uh, ecosystem that's underground, those fungi and those microbes that enable us to um, develop healthier, more nutritious food. And also, there are a lot of people who think that regenerative agriculture practices can um, uh, sequester carbon in the soil and reduce uh, the risk of global climate change. But, you know, when you say that the Midwest has been slow, it's because the Midwest went all in after World War II on the conventional agricultural system. Yeah. And the USDA, our government, our farm agencies all promoted that. It was a, you know, better living through chemistry. Uh, philosophy, the and then, then, and then, in the eighties, it was get big or get out, and that was, right. that was so yeah. harmful to farmers. And, and you saw what happened at at the end of the eighties. Farmers went belly up. It was a crisis in our country because of those policies that were enacted in the early eighties. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It did a, it did enormous jam, damage to our rural economies. It reduced the number of small land holdings of people producing, and it persuaded a lot of farmers to do nothing but produce field corn and soybeans that go into two things. They don't go into people except indirectly. They go into cows and they go into cars. uh, uh, Illinois is a farm state. We have some of the richest soil in the world. The statistic is that repeated over and over again is that 95% 95% of our food is imported from other yeah. states and other countries. We've been saying that for a decade on this show, yeah, and, yeah. and and that needs to change. All right, before we two, – two more things. Yeah. One is that um, the Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, is going to be doing an event on Wednesday um, uh, involving – greater support for small farms and local producers. Um, I don't know if you have, uh, did you, you know, uh, information ahead of time or are you just standing by to see what happens? No, I'm not in that loop. But, uh, <laughs> oh, come I mean, on. The US, USDA tends to uh, keep things pretty close to the vest anyway. They want to they control their, their own messaging. But the important thing here, and, and this has been kind of quiet in the background because let's face it, We've had a tumultuous um, year and a, year and almost a half since yeah. uh, President took over office with the uh, ongoing pandemic and with inflation and which other economic concerns and then the war in Ukraine and uh, all this horrible gun violence that's going on in our country. So issues that aren't usually in the headlines don't get a lot of attention, but very quietly. The USDA in the Biden administration has been promulgating policies and increasing funding that support local food systems, that provide more support for traditionally underrepresented groups, meaning women, people of color, um, uh, 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 people of different sexual orientations, and um, also to address some ongoing problems uh, that are uh, bottlenecks in our local food system, particularly the lack of local processing facilities for lo- for live- small and medium-sized livestock producers. They can, they're experts at growing livestock, but 
to, if they have to drive them hundreds of miles to to get them processed into meat, then it's going to be very hard and very expensive for them. So the administration has uh, taken some initiatives to address that. Um, what we're going to see Wednesday is how dramatically the administration plans to advance this goal of food systems transformation. And they've been talking about this from the get-go. I mean, even before the president took office, uh, they were starting to uh, put out white papers about this. And it, the pretext was that the pandemic had exposed fragility in our industrialized conventional food system that were never apparent before. Oh, it was efficient. It worked spectacularly. Anytime you needed food and you had the money, you could get it. And then all of a sudden you couldn't. And, uh, and uh, the supply chains were either broken down or, or uh, they, were, they were clogged. Stores had empty shelves for the first time ever. Um, there, there were those horrible scenes early in the pandemic where farmers had to bury edible food in a country yeah. where there's hungry people or slaughter animals because they couldn't get them to market. And so that was a pretext for the administration to start talking about food systems transformation. So we're going to see what the end result of a, a months-long process of public comment and working with experts, um, uh, how far um, they're willing to go in pushing for this kind of change. And the also the important uh, uh, subtext of this is that next year Congress is going to be working on and presumably passing a new five-year farm bill. And the farm bill Federal Farm Bill covers all farm food and food assistance programs. Yeah, and and we're going to see, you know, what this will be a marker. I think. Uh, well, we'll those- yeah, you know, everything's a marker uh, nowadays, and and the part part of the problem is is that it, we every time. You know, there have been incremental changes in the farm bill, but uh, generally it's 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 usually a disappointment to small farmers and to environmentalists, okay? Um, it'll be interesting to see if uh, that changes to any great extent next year. I, I have to admit, I'm one of those people, when I saw that Tom Vilsack was being appointed uh, Secretary of Agriculture, I was disappointed. I said, oh, same old, same old. Okay, we're moving on. We're not moving anywhere here. Uh, I'm hoping that that has changed a little bit. Yeah, it's it, it really certainly has. I mean, he's been pushing for all these, uh, and, and I have no insight as to whether, you know, he... Oh, come on, the, they call you every day asking for your opinion on stuff. I know that. <laughs> okay, before we go, before we go, uh, you took some photos that are really cool. Um, this is, uh, I believe, in uh, uh, Lincoln Park. Um, what'd you get here? That is a heron. And, and I, I have to admit, and if any of your callers wants to pop something into the chat or something, um, uh, I, I, I take a lot of pictures of birds. I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily able to identify it, but it is a heron. And these trees just inside the front entrance of uh, Lincoln Park Zoo off uh, Stockton Drive, um, are just have nests and nests and nests of these different kinds of herons. And you, see, you hear them flying and you hear them squawking and screaming. They are noisy birds. 
And um, it's just a spectacular spring thing that, uh, you know, you have to know is is going on. I or, think or, I think if I'm not mistaken, these are black crown night herons. Uh, uh, Peggy, do you have that sounds correct to me, but I never like to say anything. It's like, oh, my God, this because there's been. All right. I, I, there's been a, a controversy and I don't know what happened this year because uh, yeah, that's what they're looking like black crown. Right yeah, and yeah. and one of the things that happened is that there was an area, there was a walkway put in in Lincoln Park area where there were some black crowned night herons nesting, mm-hmm. and some people were afraid that they are being chased out of their area. Um, it looks like, well, and I know there were some at the at the lagoon as well, outside yeah. of uh, uh, the zoo and the farm there, um, but they were concerned about the ones behind the historical museum. Um, and I don't know if they've come back. I'd be interested if anybody knows about that, whether they have returned to their nesting area there uh, after being disturbed during construction. Last year, there were people who were terribly concerned about it, um, and we'll see. I mean, I, I, I haven't heard anything about it yet. I'll have to investigate. Uh, if you could. Uh, and and uh, All right, so the other thing that... <laughs> This is out of your realm generally, and that is this guy. Um, oh, that guy. Is that the cutest thing? It would kill you in a couple of years, but it's just like the, the, the you just want to hug it, which would be uh, inadvisable because his parents are watching over him very closely. This is Peely Peely. Oh, oh you mean uh, these people are watching over? Yeah, okay. I love that photograph. I love that photograph. I was so lucky. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, it's named for the, uh, the it's the Swahili word for pepper, and I think there was some kind of contest to name him. He was born on March fifteenth. Um, uh, you know, uh, lion births in captivity are very rare, and they are, of course, you know, a threatened species. And um, it, it was yesterday and Friday. Lincoln Park Zoo had a preview for members, but now anytime you go out to the zoo. And uh, they've redone the uh, the lion enclosure pretty brilliantly. It's it's it's, it's amazing uh, natural environment now, but you can view them from outside and also from inside. There are glass windows and, uh, that that you can look at. Is that the is that the cutest thing? Um, <laughs> yeah, like you said, it'll eat. It would. It, looks like a toy. Um, it and, would eat uh, you in a heartbeat if it could. Oh no question. <laughs> uh, but. Uh, uh, the, the crowds were huge. This was funny because this is mom trying to pick up the cub. And the cub apparently has gotten a little bit too big to be carried around by its neck. And it just slipped from her grasp and he, uh, and he dashed off. And there's the, that. That's I mean, just, they're, a, they're, these they're, are amazing they're, photos. Uh, thank you. And you can see, uh, it looks like they gave you a special spot. But if you, if you look here, this one, you can see the crowds in the background. Yeah. There's a, that's it. No, I was, I was just one of the crowd. And, and the thing is, is that because they're they're they move around a lot, you know, you have to be very mobile. So I was scooting from one vantage point to another to try and get their attention. Uh, one funny thing, the, the picture I took was, uh, wasn't that perfect, so I didn't include it. But there's a, the lions were up on a tall rock. Mom jumped down. Dad's up at the top. Actually, at, point, was, at one point, he looked like he was trying to push the cub off, you know, just to train him to, you know, learn how to fall. But yeah. the cub was having fun with it. So they built a <laughs> ramp. It's basically a wooden ramp. And the it took a while for the lion to 
uh, the Lion Cub to figure out what that was. But then he comes trotting down the ramp and everybody's cheering. <laughs> it was very sweet. But, you know, that's that's another that's an amazing thing about Chicago is that um, I live in Lakeview. I live not far from uh, from North Pond and from um, from Lincoln Park Zoo or Green City Market. And there is to have this much contact with nature so close to the, I mean, where, where I was is basically halfway between densely populated Lakeview and the z- downtown of this enormous city with all the skyscrapers. Yeah. And yet we have access to it. Plus the open lakefront, you know, what is it? 24 miles of publicly accessible. Uh, and waterfront. we need, and we need four more added to that. Uh, uh, friends of the po- yeah, I know. We just got a, a notice from that, that about that this week. Uh, and I will say, um, I'm not a huge fan of zoos, uh, but um, you know, my my feeling is let's just restore their natural areas and 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 yeah. let them do that. But um, th- you know, this is us. This is who we are now. And 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 the cub is pretty pretty darn cute. Yeah, and the and the um, the upside to zoos is that they 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 train people and they train children. To respect animals, to, to 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 really love animals. I mean, that was true for me. I mean, I grew up with Central Park Zoo, which was at that time horrible, you know, habitats or the Bronx Zoo, and that's where I learned about animals, and I've loved animals my whole life. So, you know, there there there's that. There's the educational portion of it. That um, is their best justification. Well, when I, I grew up in Detroit, and I went to the Detroit Zoo. I could ride my bike to the Detroit Zoo, which wasn't too far away. And uh, the best part was the train that ran around the perimeter of the zoo. <laughs> Every, we just wanted to get on the train and just go around the zoo that way. So, all right, Bob, Bob Benison, people can subscribe to Local Food Forum. Go to what it says there, localfoodforum.substack.com. You have a free version, but you also have a paid version, and I know you appreciate people who will uh, who will pay to uh, get the good word about good food. Or, or sign up for free. You know, we're, we're trying to build a community here. There's uh, I jumped into this because uh, nobody else was doing it, and I just felt that um, our farmers and our farmers' markets and our farm-to-table restaurants and our food access advocates and everybody else who's involved in this, uh, including eaters, <laughs> you know, yeah. just needed, um, needed uh, this, this kind of uh, communications platform. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm doing what I love. I, I hope that's pretty evident. So <laughs> uh, it, it, it kind of is, Bob. I don't think you need to, to worry about that. So uh, thanks once again for, for being with us. Enjoy your, your crazy summer of going to farmer's markets. Yeah, and uh, uh, thanks. I always enjoy uh, being on the show, and hopefully I'll come back soon. Uh, I hope so, too. Uh, And we will be right back with the Green Dispatch right after this. From spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from tiny biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners, too. And Blazing Star offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in Zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks at blazing-star.com. I don't really have a 
favourite tree specifically? Trees are so different and at different ages they have different things that make them interesting. Scott's pine trees have fantastic bark. The giant redwood is fantastic again because of the bark and the size of it. My name is Gary Hill and trees are my thing. But I'm also into shrubs. Keep calm and prune on. And welcome back. We don't have a whole lot of time for the uh, Green Dispatch, but there's a lot. Go- Boy, if I got, I mean, I sent, I sent myself even some more emails last <laughs> night as I was nodding off. I had a, a number of articles that uh, uh, I found at the, the last second, uh, one of which I want to mention that uh, there's a meteor shower that might be happening tomorrow night. Uh, Memorial Day, uh, the 30th into the 31st. And this is something that is either going to be spectacular or a dud. And scientists just don't know which. Um, and uh, but, but, but a dud in whose terms? A dud in who? Well, from people who want to watch a meteor shower. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But... Um, uh, there was a comet called 73P Swassman, Schwassman, Watchman. <laughs> okay, go say that quickly. Um, in 1995, it was first spotted in 1930, responsible for a weak meteor shower called the Tau Herculids, uh, which nowadays appear to radiate from a point about 10 degrees from the bright star Arcturus. In 1995, Comet SW3, that's an easier way to say, uh, suddenly and unexpectedly brightened. A number of outbursts were discovered or observed over a few months. A comet had fragmented, releasing huge amounts of dust, gas, and debris. Uh, By 2006, which is two orbits later, uh, the comet had disintegrated further. And basically, this year... Uh, we're going to be traveling through its tail tomorrow night. Now, this sometimes results in spectacular meteor showers, and uh, but there's no way to predict. It yeah. could be, you know, so they're they're trying to be really cautious. Scientists say, yeah, 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 there might be something cool here, and guess what? Daytime, there might be- nighttime, partly cloudy, all cloudy, clear. Uh, yeah, but but as usual, it's going to be late. It'll be at night. Um, and I think here, I don't know. I, I think partly cloudy. partly cloudy. So I think folks might be able to see some of this in the uh, Chicago region. Uh, Kathleen and I tried to get um, a, a cabin at Bullfrog Lake, um, but uh, unfo- yeah, I know. We, if we we should have done that January first, if we, that was going to happen, um, and and I didn't even realize. I thought, oh yeah, Memorial Day, that's not going to happen. So. I don't even know what we would see in the city here. You, 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 you could go out to the lake there, very close by, and probably see something spectacular. And I think yeah. it's it's kind, of, but uh, you know, it might be um, rip roaring, and it might not be. So yeah. we and, really and again partly cloudy, partly clear. Although with the um, eclipse a week or two ago, it cleared up enough to see it. Ah, well, I didn't get out. <laughs> I didn't get outside for that. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me, um, 
one of the things that I'm going to uh, highly recommend people read, I sent it to you, and, and did you get through all of it eventually, or did you just get to read Yeah, part? no, I read the whole thing. Yeah, I know. Uh, very disturbing. I, <laughs> I didn't do you any favors, and you didn't sleep well um, because of it. Uh, I, I saw this story in Current Affairs, and, and I think I was alerted to it probably by Dave Pell, who does uh, a, a newsletter. And uh, it's called, and I highly recommend everybody read this to know what's going on in our world. You want a, a realistic sense of what we're facing in, in, in a world where we're gobbling up our natural areas and, you know, paving them over. And speaking of that, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be uh, talking on this show with some folks from Pave Chicago which is an idea I came up with a year ago, but it turns out that I wasn't the first, that there were people already working on it. And I should have known. Um, but we talked about it. How my, my, my idea was unpaved 50%. The idea we take 50% of the asphalt and the concrete and rip it up and allow percolation and allow the world to do its All thing. All the abandoned areas. Yeah. But uh, there is a so so in a, in two weeks we're going to be talking to the Depave Chicago folks. But there's this article is called "The Annihilation of Florida: An Overlooked National Tragedy," and it's about Florida. And we know Florida Florida is a hot mess, hot literally and figuratively. But they're a mess with perhaps the most dangerous governor most dangerous politician in the world today uh, in Florida. Uh, and that's uh, that guy DeSantis, who's just, uh, you know, the, uh, he's, uh, uh, he's a Stalin in training basically down there. Um, but this article is about all of the stuff that is going on in Florida to try to save their natural areas and all of the things they're facing against them. But there, apparently, there's these there are these efforts. Every time you turn around, they want to put in a new tollway, and they want to rip up land to put in a new tollway um, as if they're needed. They're really not, you know. And one of the things we've learned about, and it says so in the article, one of the things we've learned about. Highways is that the more highways you put in, the more traffic there is, which is why basically when people, yeah, and people propose, you know, we got to widen this highway. Nope. It's just going to get crowded the way it is now. Leave it. Um, and, uh, but, but, the the, are the, uh, the author of this article, uh, who is, um, Jeff Vandermeer. Uh, he, he, he calls it an accelerating race to destroy Florida's wilderness shows what we value and previews our collective future during the climate crisis. And from what he writes, it doesn't look good. And I urge you to read it, not because you care that much about Florida, uh, because, but because it, it applies to all of us. doesn't matter which state you're in. The same forces are at work. The paving forces, the people who who we've got to get rid of the idea first of all that progress means paving, and building, and steel, and concrete. We have just got to get that out of our heads because that's going to kill it. Well, it's already killing us. Um, 
Uh, you know me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an optimist. I don't think there's a lot of hope here. But we have to talk about it anyway. And uh, it, it'll take you a while to get through. It's probably a 20-minute read. Um, and that'll scare some people off. But um, please, if you have a moment, go check out the link. Uh, it's I, just, I posted it on, on the Facebook feed. I can't get it up to YouTube, obviously, but I got it on the Facebook feed here. Yeah, I could I could pop it on there. You know what? Um, talk, let's, why well, and, you... and some of the some of the context of the article is it's looking at all of the fragmented habitat and ecosystems within Florida and the effort to try to build wildlife corridors throughout the state and how they're being thwarted in in part by all of these tollway extensions, extra bits of tollway that they want to put in, and all the development. And it's it's connecting these wildlife corridors versus the ongoing development and the, the I think it was referring to the vision of population, how much of the population will be in Florida by 2030, 2040. Right. And all the species that are going to decline because of this or be extirpated um, and on and on and on. And, and and again, my feeling is you read that, you can see all the other states as well and the rest of the world as well uh, in this cautionary tale. So please take a look at it. I just posted it as well uh, in case people can look at it. Uh, Axios. Yeah, yeah it's a shame we don't have Rick here, but, uh, but he he's supposed to be back with us next week. I don't know for sure. I haven't talked to him. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows yeah. if he's, he's maybe he, he's gone to another country. I don't know. Um uh, the, yeah, yeah, he was in Florida last last heard. Yeah, exactly. I get to talk to him. Hey, Florida is a hot mess, Rick. What do you got to say about that? You know, um, the uh, upcoming Atlantic hurricane season is likely to be unusually active, according to Axios and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, they they released this on Tuesday. The big picture, uh, NOAA is forecasting a 65% chance that the upcoming hurricane season will be above average with a 25% chance of near-normal activity and just a 10% chance of below-normal tropical cyclone numbers. They're saying that uh, the agency is predicting a 70% chance, and again, it's just a chance, this is their predictions, of 14 to 21 named storms. Of these, 6 to 10 would become hurricanes, and of these, 3 to 6 would intensify into major hurricanes of Category 3 or greater. Um, And uh, also along those lines, I found this story from the Associated Press. Their headline, Weather's Unwanted Guest, Nasty La Nina Keeps Popping Up. And they're saying that La Nina is going on its third year, which is very unusual. It's not unprecedented. It's just unusual. Um, and it's causing some of the heat and drought and also flooding that uh, mm-hmm. we've been seeing. Um, and, and that is from the Associated Press. Um, excuse me. And uh, a couple of things I wanted to get into. Um, um, we, we've set another record in terms of carbon in the atmosphere. 
We've hit uh, 421.37 parts per million, uh, beating the previous record last year of 418.95. So that just continues to do what it's going to do. We have a, a story there on how to stay safe during tick season. Um, a story on uh, Carvana, our good friends Carvana. Being, you're not the only one who sent that to me, Peggy. Uh, Ron Cowgill <laughs> sent uh, ah. the link to me as well. He says, well, what are you going to do? I said, what are you going to do about this? Um, it doesn't mean that the city of Skokie is going to do business with them, and I hope they don't, but the state of yeah, Illinois... I mean, they- they were told to go away until we, until Skokie told them to go away until Skokie allowed them to talk to them again. So. Right. So I just hope that that's stupid. Every time I see a Carvana commercial on TV, I, I want to throw something uh, at it. Um, and something that uh, I was kind of unaware of until I saw a newsletter from uh, Alder person. Michelle Smith and the 43rd Ward, she she voted against the casino, okay? She was one of the few people, and good for her. Congratulations to Alder Michelle Smith. But that passed. And the other thing I was unaware of is that they're, they're ramrodding through all these different things right now, casinos and venues that they're going to open up on the Chicago River. The Chicago River, which... All this industrial area, which we were told, oh, we're going to put parks now in, and now we're going to put venues that allow unbridled noise to come out from them. And They're, lights. And lights, probably. And lights. And lights. Yeah. Um, it's just, oh, wait a second. Oh, and I didn't, well, I got to put the. Uh, yeah, the links aren't working on some of those. Oh, geez, that's, I try. I, I was working so hard to get all those links up. I think it's the last three of them. Really? The one's not, yeah. uh, no, the tick season is, is up there. That one's working. Uh, the stingray, is that, that's there. So. Okay, I don't, I'm not, there was some last evening when I was looking at, anyways, boy. they weren't going through. Oh. Well. Uh, but the, what's what the council city council in its wisdom passed was you know because of the Morton Salt they want to have a temporary outdoor facility, and uh, they're going to. Um, city said, "Yeah, have at it. We'll let you put out the amplifiers and everything else you need. And uh, heck, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, how could that possibly harm nature or people or anything like that? I I don't know what the hell is wrong with the city of Chicago." Um, I can tell you one thing. Lori Lightfoot has convinced me. I will vote for anybody except her right now. I'm going to actively campaign against that woman when she runs. I don't care if Mickey Mouse. Well, no, that's a that's a Disney thing. So, you know, you know what's going on in Florida. But I, really, I almost don't care. I, I've, I've, I got into a bad habit back in the day in Chicago for years, for decades. I would, in the mayoral race, I always voted for the person who didn't win and was always proud of that. Um, And uh, unfortunately, I made a mistake in the last election and voted for somebody who won. That was obviously a mistake. So I need to go in another direction here. Um, uh, This this 
current mayor does not care about the environment. She's uh, secretive. She's uh, uh, belligerent. Um, I don't understand her policies. I don't understand much about anything she does. So uh, time for a change, folks, if you ask me. But that's just my uh, soapbox here, and uh, you can argue with me or not about that. All right, so I'm going to fix that link so you can see the editorial by our, our good friends at the Chicago Tribune, our, our, <laughs> our uh, whatever they're owned by, the money firm that owns them. But they do have a very good editorial about why the outdoor music venue um, proposal is a terrible one for the city of Chicago. I mean, we're still dealing with uh, Lincoln Yards, which could have been uh, a, 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 a world-changing development. It's just more steel and concrete, just nonsense. Um, but... They, they're still fighting to get Alderman Smith. I should talk to Alderman Smith because uh, uh, she, you know, she mentioned also in her newsletter that they're still fighting for the park at uh, Lincoln Yards, and who knows whether that will happen at all. All right, you got anything uh, that uh, you you want to add? Other than the sign behind you. Oh yeah, you you do that because I'm gonna well, while speaking, you're doing that, I want to grab speaking some. Of, speaking of Alder Critters and speaking of Dolly, Foster, yeah, who's on who's on the Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards Committee. Thank you, Dolly. Yep. Yay. Uh, yep. Gardens are going crazy right now, obviously. And uh, now's the time to get out, take the photos. Go to chicagogardeningawards.org if you live in the city of Chicago and enter your garden. It's free. It can be your backyard. It can be your community garden, your church, business, school, container garden. could be something up on your patio or deck that's spectacular. Um, vegetable gardens, ornamental gardens, butterfly gardens. If you live in the city of Chicago, we want to see your entry in the Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards. Ooh, peonies already? Peonies, yeah. My peonies wow. uh, have started blooming. That's really. Yeah, aren't they? My, aren't my they? lilacs just started. Are you kidding me? My lilacs are about done. Um, no, just started. In fact, somebody somebody on the block was commenting yesterday. With with the breeze going by, how how nice the lilacs smell, you know, two doors down. Yeah, uh, there are some lilacs in Chicago that have been done for a month. I saw wow. some blooming really really early. Cooler near the lake. So yeah, enter the uh, Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards. Go to uh, chicagogardeningawards.org. Uh, please be part of that. And uh, it's and, free. It's yep. fun. What have you got to lose? All all we can do is tell you. Yeah, your garden stinks. It look, no, we would never do that. We never do that. No, usually we're expounding over how beautiful. I know. We, we, that's our problem is that we find it hard to uh, to cut the numbers so that we can actually have a ceremony and, and not include everybody in the whole city. So uh, yeah, we hope uh, folks will. Would that be good if we could? I'd like to. We want to hit all fifty wards this year. So and yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, you need to live in Chicago to be part of that. Someday, maybe. Eh, maybe we we'll get up. Have to. You want to be a judge, but to enter the contest. Con- yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, let's get out of here. Uh, thanks to uh, Dolly Foster for being on the show and talking to us about monarchs and milkweed. Thanks to Bob Benenson. Go to localfoodforum.substack.com. Uh, in terms of Dolly, you can go to hort4u.net. Uh, 
Net. Net. All right. Yep. Thanks to Kathleen. Thanks to Legata. I don't know why I'm thinking her. She hasn't been around. Oh, thanks to Dolly's cat. She was wonderful. Uh, Basil, Basil the dog. And thanks to all of you watching. We really appreciate it. So uh, until next time, go green or go home. Uh, Stadler? Uh, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much.